Dear Father, we thank you for this wonderful epistle uh, that you inspired John to write, where you guided him in his words so that he would record true doctrine for us. And we see so much truth revealed on these pages, so much truth that is necessary for us to live by. We recognize that in the end of the first century, you had yet more to say to mankind before closing the canon. And so we thank you so much that you saw fit to give us these words of grace, these words of peace, uh, these words upon which we live the spiritual life. So we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are finally moving in our outline of John's epistles from uh, faith, fellowship, and freedom to our last point in the outline, fellowship in practice. And these last six messages are basically going to summarize every epistle that John wrote, including his three epistles, the larger one and the two smaller. And then our last message will be a progress report looking at the seven churches of Revelation to see how did these churches fare after receiving these words from John. Well, this morning it is a little bittersweet because this is my favorite book in the entire Bible, and we are finishing it this morning. So uh, I can't wait until we can study this one again, but who knows, that might be 50 years from now. So I'll look forward to being here, Lord willing, and I hope many of you will too, although much better to be in glory together with him. And this morning we are looking at the message of First John. My plan was to give a summary outline of 1 John this morning, but I didn't finish 1 John last week as I had intended to. And, well, that works out just fine because I think John's summary words are much better than any summary I could have come up with to capture the main doctrines that he emphasized in his first epistle. So we will look at those last four verses of 1 John, which summarize his teaching. And the main idea this morning is that everything in John's letter moves swiftly and abruptly to these last verses. His point is that we already have the truth. We have no need to go seeking it elsewhere. And his conclusion is, do not abandon the truth for anything. Everything else is a lie. We stand solidly and firmly on the message that was once delivered to the saints, the message of Jesus Christ, that he is the truth and that he is the life. And so in coming to his summary conclusion, John first reiterates our security that we have in Christ Jesus. In 1 John 5.18, he says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now this is a perfectly fine translation. It gets the point across. But for the sake of our sermon, I want to show you why I'm changing these words just a bit. This is then my own translation. But you see in the red, this article is not no one, but everyone. This little particle means all. If it's referring to a person, it means everyone. If it's referring to a thing, it means everything. Those who are born from God, this adds emphasis to the source. And remember how John has emphasized the source, that we 
being born of God, have our source in him, whereas the rest of the world, being part of the cosmos system, has its source in the world. And so I added from here to emphasize that particle in the Greek. Now you wonder why in this translation they're able to say no one, and in mine I'm able to say everyone. It's because in this little brown, I hope that shows up right, the brown words here mean not. And in the Greek, the not goes with the verb, not sin. They do not sin. But the translator, who did a perfectly fine job translating, put that not with the subject. So instead of no one who is born of God sins, we have everyone who is born from God does not sin. The same meaning, but with different emphasis. The emphasis is that every single thing that proceeds forth from God has no sin. And that's important for us because there is a part of us that proceeds forth from God, the true part. But then there is the old part as well that does not proceed forth from God, but proceeded forth from Adam in his corruption. And this is what John is talking about. And it gets a little confusing when we just get the words that no one who is born from God sins. Because then if we don't dig a little deeper, we come up with this false assumption that the believer will never sin. But that contradicts what John said earlier, when in his very first chapter he says that if we say we have no sin, or if we say that we do not sin, we're liars. And we call God a liar because God says that we do sin. But that part of us that he put in us, that part of us that was born the moment that we believed in Jesus Christ, that new nature which we all possess now, this comes from God, and if there is any sin in the body of the believer, it does not come from the new nature. And so, we know two things here. We know that everyone who is born from God does not sin. The believer in his new nature does not sin. And we know that he who is born of God keeps him. Now, these are the same idea, two sides of the same coin, if you will. This is all about the new nature. But we know a second thing, that the evil one does not touch him. Jesus is holding secure our new nature. It has an eternal destiny. It was created specifically for that. And the evil one cannot touch us in our new nature. Our bodies can be handed over to him for destruction, but our new nature is eternally secure. And so that does bring up the issue of sin in the body of the believer, specifically the sin nature. John is pulling from a statement that he made back in chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, everyone who or all that abides in him does not sin. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And remember, abiding has to do with our fellowship. The abiding believer does not sin. If we are abiding in Christ while we are abiding in him, there is no sin found in our bodies or in our new nature because our new nature is powering the body. We have to choose to step outside a fellowship with him, an act of rebellion against the will of God. And sadly, we do this often. Thankfully, we have a rebound that we can make when we simply agree with him about our rebellion when we say yes. That was contrary to your will. 
but you can wash me clean in the blood of Christ, and you have washed me clean in the blood of Christ. So the abiding believer does not sin. Abiding is fellowship, and fellowship with God is impossible in the old nature. There is only fellowship with him in the new nature. Now talk of the old nature and new nature gives us, again, a troublesome picture. Because this is not really an accurate picture of the old nature and the new nature. It's not the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. This is not the biblical image of the old and the new nature. To see that, we'll go to Romans for just a minute. Romans 6, starting in verse 2, it says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This isn't a half and half. This is one is dead and one's alive. Are we living in a dead body or are we living in a living body? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? This is something that is finished and true of every believer the moment that they believe, because the moment you believe, you are now identified with Christ. No longer do you have your own righteousness, but you have his. Your righteousness could never live up to the righteousness of the law of God. But Christ's did perfectly. And now that has been given to you. And in the same way, his death has been given to you and his life has been given to you. Romans 6, 4 says, therefore, we have been buried. This is a perfect tense, speaking of something that happened in the past with present result. It's over and done. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Your old nature has been crucified. It has been buried. And you were raised in newness of life. You've been given a new nature, something that is not present in an unbeliever. Romans 6.5 says, If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and this if, again, is a first-class conditional, meaning since, taken for granted this fact that has already been stated in the book of Romans. If we have become united with him, and we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is Paul's logical argument that right now, presently, we stand in the likeness of his resurrection. This is a fact that is already finished. We look forward to experiencing that in full at the glorification. But we already possess that resurrection life. That is our new nature. Paul continues knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. The old nature being born in the nature of the sons of wrath is a slave to sin. It can't do anything else. And in order for it to be set free, it has to die. And it has. Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And so that's the same death that your old nature has been put through. 
But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice what this does not say. This does not say, crucify your flesh now. Mortify the flesh so that you might experience living in the flesh. This means consider this fact done. Consider this not something that you have to do, but something that Jesus has already completed. The only commands we get in Romans 6 and 7, which are the sanctification chapters, how to live because we have been saved, are commands of what we ought to think. We have to know what has been done for us already. And we have to believe what has been done for us already in Jesus. This is how we live the Christian life, resting in Christ's finished work. Because whenever we get our flesh involved, we are now using gas in an electric car. It doesn't work. Imagine that this is you, the believer. On the outside, you look just the same as any other car on the road, maybe a little older and worse for the wear even. But when you open the hood, there's something different. Something that shouldn't exist in this car. Something this car wasn't made with. This is an electric engine. It doesn't run on gas. But the outside of the car still looks like a gas car. That car for its entire life has run on gas. But the moment a new engine was put into it, it no longer functioned on gas. It needed a new source of power, a new energy. You might say, well, that's an old clunker. Why would you put a new engine in an old clunker? Well, the new one's on order. It's not ready yet for you to possess. But the maker of it so wanted you to have this car that he put the engine into your old car until this one's ready. So you can experience that new life that's on order already. And so when we see this car running down the road, and we know for a fact that there is a different engine inside of it, we know that when we need power, we're not going to pull up to a gas station, but we're going to go to a charging station. This is the same issue that Paul has in Romans 7. He keeps trying to put gas in his electric car, and it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. And why is that? Because he's looking at the outside of the car, the things that he's experiencing, the things that he's feeling, the life that he lived in the flesh, rather than looking at the finished work of Christ. So he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Notice all the commands that he gave us in Romans 6 and 7 are mental activity verbs. And here he's talking about activity with his hands. Things that he's trying to do. It doesn't work. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now notice this distinction that Paul is making. He is identified with his new nature. 
His old nature is that sin that still lingers in the body. But that's not who he is. He is a new creature. Oops. But I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. The car still has a port that we can put gasoline into, but it's not going to power the engine. It's not going to work. We might have a bad day like this lady trying to put gas into her Tesla. Whoops. And mind you, it's not only ladies that do that. Apparently men do that as well. Mm -hmm. I knew I had to be fair there. But ultimately, putting the wrong fuel into an engine that doesn't take fuel is only going to leave you dead on the highway. Because we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, He died for all, Jesus Christ, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The life we live is his life. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. And this is the principle that John is using in 1 John. He is not recognizing the person in the flesh. He is recognizing the person as the new creature in Christ. No one who is born of God sins. The one who is born of God does not sin. Because that is the person, the new nature. It's not a half and half deal. It's a one is dead, the other is alive. Paul asks, who can set me free from this body of death? There is this graphic image in his words of a dead body clinging to him. This is the old nature. We're not half alive and half dead. We are alive in Christ. And we are to use that living body, that new nature, not the old. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Naturally, at the end of Paul's diatribe against trying to live the Christian life in the flesh rather than in the spirit, he says, wretched man that I am. You can see him kicking his rusty clunker on the side of the street. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And he continues in, thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. When he looks forward to the glorification, when this brand new perfect engine will be placed into the body it was meant to inhabit. Coming back to 1 John, in 1 John 3.9 he says, Everyone who is born of God does not sin because his seed abides in him. Because he has been retrofitted with a new engine. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. If there is sin in your life, it has not come from the new nature. And that is an indicator that you are not walking in the new nature. The goal then is not to try harder with your flesh, but to turn to Christ in his finished work. To receive cleansing through confession of sin, which is agreeing with him about your sinfulness. So the new nature and not the old 
is born of God. The old nature is in Adam's seed of flesh, and the new nature is the spiritual seed of God. So everyone who is born from God does not sin. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is the new nature, Christ living in you. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this old rusty clunker that has a new engine, I live by faith in the Son of God. He plugs it into the right charging port, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And this brings us then to that Savior. In John's text as well, he says, But he who was born of God keeps him. And this is not necessarily an easy clause to understand either. John, as he begins to summarize, is using a lot of shorthand. And he is also using a turn of phrase here to show the similarity in nature between the believer, the Savior, and God the Father. And this is clear in the text. It says, everyone that is born from God, this is a perfect tense. Every time that John speaks of the birth of the believer, he uses this perfect tense. A moment in the past that has present effect. But when he is speaking of Jesus as the begotten Son of God, he uses what's called an aorist, which is just simply a summary tense. To summarize what that means, John consistently uses the perfect participle of ganao for believers, indicating a specific moment in the past that made them presently a child of God. This makes the verbal idea of birth prominent. For you as a believer, you were born again, the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. There is a moment that you could trace back into history where you became a child of God, a past moment with present effect. However, when referring to Jesus as begotten of God, John uses the aorist, diminishing the verbal idea of an instant of birth to instead focus on the summary relationship between father and son who share in the same nature. John 8.42 says, Jesus, describing himself, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from the father. Jesus has his source both in his will and in his person, from the Father, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by, or that little prep, uh, preposition, ek, giving us source, from or sourced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not come into existence as a being through God, but his existing together with God was put into the existence of man. He has always shared in the nature of God. He added to that nature a natural birth into human, into humanity. Now, because this is not an easy clause to understand, because it takes a little bit of headwork to get there. There was a textual variant 
that grew out of this passage. A textual variant is when one of our many thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament say something different. Usually this happens because a text is hard to understand and the copyist tries to make it more understandable. Often though they are putting in their own ideas and not what the original text meant. And this probably happened here because uh, there is the addition of a single letter that changes it from he who is born of God keeps him to he who was born of God keeps himself. Bruce Metzger, who's an excellent Greek scholar, who was part of the uh, United Bible Society, who compiled these manuscripts into a Greek text, he wrote on this textual variant, the lack of clarity intended by the words, hagenethes, which is the one referring to Jesus, promoted copyists to introduce one or another change in the interest of clarification of meaning. They wanted to make it clear who John meant. The only problem is they may not have understood who John meant. Copyists who took Hagenethes to refer to the Christian believer, although elsewhere John always uses Hagenemenos, uh, never Hagenethes, of the believer, naturally they preferred the reflexive Heautos or Heauton. They preferred to look at this as the believer keeping himself secured, rather than understanding that Jesus in his nature protects us in our, in our nature that comes from him. Jesus is the one who holds us secure. So we know this, everyone that is born from God does not sin. We, identified now with our new nature, sin does not come from our new nature. And the begotten one of God, Jesus Christ, he keeps him. And him refers back to this new nature, not the believer keeping himself. And this is also interesting. I won't go into this much, but this keeps is the same Greek verb for keeping the law. Jesus, because he kept the law, is able to impute us with his righteousness. And back in 1 John 3, 6 and 9 that we were just looking at, that is the idea. We have no righteousness in ourselves, but Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He keeps us because he was obedient to the will of God. And when we no more than believe in him, shifting our trust from self and our flesh and our old nature, when we shift that trust to him, we now receive his righteousness. He keeps us in God the Father. John 10.27 tells us the same truth. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He keeps us eternally secure. Now, when he goes on to pray to God the Father, after his upper room discourse in which he explained to John and the other disciples how they were to live in fellowship with God in this new dispensation, this dispensation of grace that we live in today. He says about his disciples, I am no longer in the world. He's about to leave. He is about to return to the Father. 
He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. This plea with God the Father to hold believers secure and to bring them into fellowship with him. In John 17, 12, he continues, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, speaking of Judas, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now this is interesting because before the penalty was paid by Christ on the cross, there was no existence of a new nature in the believers. This is part of the new covenant that was promised to the Old Testament believers as a future reality. You see, Christ had to actually die and rise again in order for him to identify believers into this death and resurrection. He is praying that God holds them secure in his life that he is now handing back to the Father. And God is going to make good on this prayer. Jesus, his son, is praying to God the Father in the Father's will, and it is answered on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit begins to baptize every believer into a new nature, into a new life with Christ, baptizing them spiritually into his death and into his resurrection. The answer to this prayer that Jesus made was the new nature put into the believers. And why is John bringing this up now at the end of his epistle? Because we just got this somewhat unnerving passage, if we don't understand it, in 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him or give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make requests for this. There is discipline in the life of the believer when he chooses to walk not in the new nature, but in the old dead flesh. And so John is assuring us of our security by showing us that it is our new nature that is held secure. It is our new nature that was born in Christ. And there is this issue of reversionism where a believer can go back to his old nature and begin to live in that rather than in the new nature where he starts putting gas in a tank that doesn't take gas anymore. God holds us eternally secure, but only the part of us which has been born from him, the new nature. The flesh is destined to perish. For those of us who will be translated into the rapture, and I hope I'm part of that generation, the flesh will still disappear. Our old clunker will not enter into the new life. We will be given a new body, one and all of us. That part of us is not secure. In fact, it is destined to perish. But he also keeps our new nature from being trapped in a body that refuses to live according to the new nature. This brand new shiny engine in this old clunker, God is protecting that. God protects the physical body while it is operating in the spirit. 
However, when the believer reverts to his old nature, God may disable the body to stop the flesh from bringing disgrace to the believer's new nature. Why? Because that new nature is born of God. It is born of Christ's nature. God may destroy the vehicle to free the new nature, or the engine, from that body of sin. Sin unto death is simply a believer who continues to live out of fellowship with God. It is sin that's heading in that direction. Now we look forward to our new nature being separated from this body of death, just as Paul did in Romans 7.25. But we look forward to it, not in the destruction of our body, but in the glorification of our new nature into a glorified body. Romans 8.18, where Paul heads in just a few verses, says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And who are the sons of God? We are. Everyone who is born of him by believing in him is a son of God. And there is a revelation of our nature still waiting in the future, where our experience is going to catch up with our position in Christ. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. That is our experience in the new nature today. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting to redeem that body that's on layaway that body which belongs to the engine that's now in us. No sin has to be a sin unto death. We have been given a cure for that, and the cure is the same one that saved us initially, the blood of Jesus Christ. And once again, the only condition is faith. Believing the same thing that he says is true that our sin is sinful. He washes us clean. This is our rebound into fellowship. The new nature produces the fruit of righteousness consistent with the will and nature of God. And the old nature produces only rebellion and sin. So which one are we feeding? Which one are we living in? While walking in the spirit, we are in fellowship with God. When we choose to step out of fellowship through sin, which is an act of rebellion against the will of God, we break fellowship. Our responsibility is to retreat from our rebellion and to rebound into fellowship by agreeing with God concerning his will and our rebellion against it. This is a summary of 1 John 1.9, one of the foundational texts that John puts right in the first chapter so that everything else can grow on top of it. We need fellowship. For fellowship, we need a new nature. For that fellowship to continue, we need to walk in that new nature. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What then is the role of Satan? Remember earlier he had told us to beware of what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the domain of operation. The flesh is the vehicle that he fuels. And Satan is the one that loves to fuel the flesh by means of the world. 
We can think of this as the opposite of being filled with the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit takes the word of God to fill the believer and energize his new spirit. Satan takes the things of the world, the temptations that exist outside of God, outside of God's will, everything that is a lie, to fill the flesh and fuel it against God. But of this new nature, the evil one does not touch him. John could not be more clear. Our new nature will exit this world having never been touched by the stain of sin because Jesus is holding him secure. And if the body begins to threaten that soul, which is held secure again, so it's not a true threat, God may free that soul from the body of sin. 1 Timothy 1.18, we see again, a sin leading towards discipline. Not quite death at this point, I believe. But Paul writing to Timothy says, I command, this, I, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, fight the good fight and keeping the faith and good conscience, with which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Some started well but didn't finish well. Some started in faith, but did not continue in faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. You know it's not good when Paul names you. This is uh, like, unless he's directly addressing you, Paul, Paul's pretty salty about the people he addresses. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Guess what Paul did not hand over? The part of these believers that was eternally secure by Jesus Christ, their new nature. But God, in his permissive will, may use Satan in order to discipline the believer. God, in his permissive will, even allowed Simon Peter to be sifted by Satan so that he might grow in regards to his faith. See, Satan's will is to be outside of God's will. And everything he does, even those things which are outside of the will, are still within God's permissive will. You might ask then, who's really losing here? And it's always Satan. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Sadly, this is something that a lot of, of Bible teachers do not understand because they come to the text with a theology rather than getting their theology from the text. This believer and this group of believers in Corinth was acting more fleshly than the Gentiles who only have flesh and no new nature. Why is that? Because these Corinthians, despite having been given a new nature, continue to fill and fill and fill their old nature with fuel. They continue to jam-pack in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every temptation and every lie that they can grab onto, they chase it. In fact, when he comes back in 2 Corinthians and commends them, in a way, for having uh, fixed some of these problems by returning to the faith that they had, he still characterizes them as those who are swift to run away from the truth. The Corinthian church was swift to abandon truth. 
to fuel themselves on Satan's words rather than God's words. They had a long, slow time learning how to live in the body of Christ. And some of them were set free from their bodies of sin because they just continued to rebel in their activity. And that's what happens here. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, incest. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They did not properly deal with the sin of this believer in their congregation. They allowed it to continue and it festered and it grew. And so Paul is reproving the whole congregation for not dealing with the sin in the body. This is one of the reasons why we are told to meet together. We don't live the Christian life alone because this is like wandering alone in a wilderness as a sheep. The wolves that come to get you are going to get you. But in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Paul says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This one is being handed over to Satan only in the part that is destined for destruction anyways. He is receiving a premature destruction and a destruction that is not met with dying grace. He will enter into the heavenly realms together with Christ. He will be glorified, but he is missing out on rewards. And the life that he could have enjoyed in Christ, despite the afflictions that the world might throw on him, the peace that surpasses all understanding that could have been his, if he had chosen to operate by faith rather than by works. His flesh was handed over for destruction, so that his spirit may be saved. This new nature that was given to him, that this spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, looking forward to that glorification. In John seventeen fifteen, when Jesus was praying to the Father about holding believers secure, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. He was not praying that we be set free from these clunky rattlers. He was praying that God keeps us from the evil one, that he protects us so that we do not experience that sort of premature death. Protecting the old body, as long as the new nature has use of it here on the earth, until it is the Lord's will to call us home and not by punishment, but by grace. Jude 24 and 25, Jude was written around the same time as 1 John. And this is the benediction that Jude gives to his congregation that was dealing with some similar uh, introduction to false doctrine as 1 John was. He said, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, Jesus is able to hold us secure. But if our volition chooses to walk in a different direction, if we choose to stand outside of the will of God, 
This is a choice that in his permissive will, he allows us to do for a period of time so that we might learn and grow. Just as a child by his parents is allowed to toe the line so that he might learn where the line is and not come near it when he grows up. So that he might learn where it is and learn how much better it is not to toe the line, but to stay solidly and squarely in fellowship. John also reminds us of these two distinct sources. John does not mince words. John makes very clear that there is a dichotomy in the spiritual life. Just as the old nature and the new nature have nothing of one another, so the sources that we go to for life, either in this world or in the Word, have nothing to do with one another. John says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are of God. In 1 John 4, uh, 4 through 6, we see these three different groups of people. The people to whom John is writing, the people about whom John is writing, those who were trying to deceive them, and then the group of apostles. He says, you are from God, little children. Speaking to his audience, you are believers, you have your source in God. And you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They, being the deceivers, are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Notice their car is still fitted for gasoline. When you pour gasoline into their car, it actually does run. It actually does work. But it is a smoky, smelly mess. I have nothing against gas-powered cars, but it works for the analogy. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. This world is still working for them, but it is only working for them in the direction of death. This world does not work for the believer. Often we get frustrated because the way we used to live before we were saved just doesn't work anymore. It does not produce the success that we expect and that we desire because we're fitted to live differently now. We are fitted to live in dependence on God's word. This is the source that fuels us. This is the source by which we drive. And we happen to drive then in a different direction, a direction we never knew that we wanted to drive. But as long as we continue to live as if we are gas-powered cars, we will never experience the joy of living in Christ. Because the cosmic system has its own gas station. And it is everything that comes forth from Satan. It says the whole world lies in the power of Satan, or the power of the evil one. Now the power of is an interpretive addition. These words aren't actually in the Greek text, but it is the idea. It's Satan's power which powers the cosmos system. It is his power that fuels the world. And the world is laying down in his lap. This word Keta in the Greek has the idea of resting, reclining, or even sleeping by connotation. The world is pacified by Satan. It is sleeping. 
Second Corinthians 4.3 says, even if our gospel it is, is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing. They're laying in the lap of the evil one. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the power that Satan has over his children, the world. And we, when we had only the old nature, were part of that world. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. When that was your fuel, when Satan's cosmos system was what energized you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you have been made alive in Christ. You have a different fuel. And you are headed for glory while the rest of the world is headed for judgment. John 12, 31 says, Judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That judgment has already occurred. Everyone who attaches their wagon to the horse of Satan's evil cosmos system has attached it to a wagon headed swiftly off a cliff. But we are of God. We have a different source now because we have a different direction. We have a different place that we are being kept for. And so the Christian life is one that can be lived in stability, standing on these facts of Christ's finished work, of the presence of the new nature, and of the fuel that we have it in the word of God revealed in Scripture. These facts are interesting. For one, because we live in a world that tells us, you can't know that. How many times have you tried to explain something from Scripture to anyone, even Christians? And they say, well, you can't really know that. Like, yeah, but it, it's confusing. It's not really meant to be understood. It's spiritual. Is that what John has been telling us? For the third time this morning, he says, we know. This is the Greek word for know, which is oida, to know facts. There's also a Greek word, genao, which is to, or genosko, which is to know experientially, like you would know a husband or a wife. But this is to know a fact, like you would know that two plus two is four. Now we can know that, right? I mean, in this day and age, maybe not. But you should be able to know that 2 plus 2 is 4. And this is the kind of equation that John is making. We know this to be a fact. In fact, what does he say we know to be a fact? We know that no one who is born of God sins. We know that the new nature does not produce sin. And he who was born of God keeps him. We know Jesus is holding us eternally secure. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that nothing that is held secure is going to be tainted by Satan. We know that we are of God. We know this is our source. And we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Everything produced by the world is part of that cosmos system. And so here, 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come. Jesus the Messiah has indeed come. He was fully God and fully man. And we know that he has given us understanding for the purpose that we may know him who is true. Not an assumption, not a guess, 
Not an educated guess. We know that this is true. It has been revealed to us. What did he say back in 1 John 5, 13? If the word of, if we believe the word of man, the word of God is an even greater testimony. That's my bad paraphrase, but it gets the point across. And we know that we are in him who is true. We know that we've been put into fellowship with him. In his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is a lot of statements of truth and of facts. In fact, this is not hardly at all the first time that John has made a truth statement. John is concerned very much with what we know and what we know certainly. This is not an exhaustive list. This is only those places where John uses this specific Greek verb, oida. There are many other ways, such as using truth, to say what we know to be a fact. But here in 2.20, we know that we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. We know that we are indwelled with that spirit that God gave us, by which he produced in us a new nature. In 2.21, we know the truth. And in the context, that truth is the gospel that came from the apostles. In 2.29, we know that God is righteous and we know that his children are righteous. In 3.2, we know that when he comes back, we will be conformed to his likeness. We will have that engine that our old clunker has been retrofitted for. We know that that new engine will be placed into a new car made ready for us. In 3.5, we know that the reason he came was to take away sin and that he himself is sinless. In 3.14, we know that we have already, already, finished in the past, we have already passed out of death and passed into life. In 3.15, we know that hate or murder are not sourced in Jesus' eternal life. This does not come from the new nature. And in 5.13, we know absolutely that we have eternal life. Again, these only come from one Greek verb meaning to know in John's epistle. He is obsessed with facts that we can know about Jesus Christ. Because this congregation has been fed lies, not only by the heretic Serenthus, but by many others, wolves that came into the congregation trying to shake the foundation of their faith. Our faith rests in God's testimony, in God's word, not the word of men. John 17, again, this prayer that Jesus made before his crucifixion and then his ascension. John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Remember, we are identified in him. As he is, so are we in this world. 1 John 4.17 said, John 17.20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, not on behalf only of those apostles of Christ, but for those also who believe in me through their word. To put that in shorthand here, he's not writing this just about John, who is part of those 12, but he is writing it about everyone who reads John's words, 
and believes. And that is you. This prayer that Jesus made to the Father was about you. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This fellowship was John's idea as well. At the beginning of 1 John, he talked about the joy of fellowship, and he gets this from Jesus' prayer. John 17, 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, he's revealing God through the spoken word of himself, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Identified with him in his joy, we can experience it as we are walking with him. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. John is telling us what we know, the true testimony of God, because it stands against the cosmos system. This is the fuel that we live the spiritual life by, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The cosmos system, on the other hand, is opposed to this truth, opposed to the facts that the Bible teaches. And if they cannot oppose those facts, they try to diminish them as not facts, but spiritual thinking, pleasant ideas, but not true. That could not be further from the truth. That has its source, not in God, but in the cosmos system. We know also that he has given us understanding and understanding for the purpose that we may know something. Remember in 1 John 2.27, he said that he gave us an anointing, the Holy Spirit, by which we were able to know doctrine. The things that we learn from scripture, we're able to understand and apply spiritually because the spirit guides us in doing that. But here he's given us understanding by his revelation for the purpose that we might know and that we might know experientially him who is true so that we might know Jesus to jump the gun a bit and tell you who is the one that is true. This is the fellowship that we have. This gnosko that we might know him who is true. And this is just the Greek word truth. So the idea is that we may know truth. But later in this passage, John is going to personify this so that we understand that truth is not speaking of something impersonal, but a person that John is personally acquainted with. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is that truth, the only way to God. Remember, John said that no one has seen the Father, but Jesus Christ, the Son, has revealed him. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Remember John 17, 3, this prayer of Jesus. This is eternal life, that eternal life that he has given to us, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is the truth that he has given us his word, given us these facts that we can believe so that we can come to know who he is because he's revealed himself in his word. 
And so we know then that we are in him who is true. We are in the truth. This is why John says, you have no need that anyone tell you, that anyone teach you. He's speaking of other people coming and telling them something different than what is written in God's word. This is the truth. We can't go anywhere else. We don't want to go anywhere else for truth because truth, by definition, if it is not part of truth, it is part of the lie. We are in him who is true. We are in the truth. And he equates this in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth that we are in. He is the son of God, the Messiah who was promised. Remember 1 John 5.11, just two weeks ago. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. This could not be any clearer. And so in him, we do have freedom. Now there's one last textual, it's not an issue, but a textual interest here. At the very end of this verse, it says, This is the true God and eternal life. Now, this is a unique construction in the Greek that falls under what's called the Granville Sharp Rule. And Granville Sharp was simply the name of a man who wrote six different Greek rules concerning the article. In English, that's the or a. These are articles. In the Greek, it's ha. Now, you'll notice this first little red word, the, is translated by the Greek word ha. And in the middle, you've got chi, which is the Greek word and. And you've got two singular nouns on either side. This is the Granville Sharp rule that if it's governed by one single article, not two articles for the two nouns, but one article, then these refer to the same thing. I'll read you the Granville Sharp rule as Dan, uh, Daniel Wallace records it. He says in Greek, when two nouns are connected by chi and the article precedes only the first noun, there is a close connection between the two. Now this is true whether or not they're identical. That connection always indicates at least some sort of unity. They're at least related. They're not distinct. At a higher level, it may connote equality. At the highest level, it may indicate identity. And that is what we are trying to see is, does this equate identity? When the construction meets three specific demands, then the two nouns always refer to the same person. So our interest here is, does the true God and eternal life refer to the same person, to Jesus Christ? These three rules are that neither is impersonal. They all have to refer to a person. Neither is plural, and that's true. And neither is a proper name. Jesus is not evoked here. John is not evoked. These are not proper names. The only issue is the impersonal. Eternal life appears to be impersonal unless we are following John's argument through the whole book that Jesus Christ is that eternal life in which we live. So John is doing double duty here. He is not only making eternal life personal, as the person of Jesus Christ, but he is also identifying eternal life with the true God. Jesus is the Son of God. 
And so the best way to understand this is this word, this. What does this refer to? In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the closest thing to this. And it agrees in gender and in number. This refers to Jesus Christ. The word is, is like an equal sign in language. Just like in math, you get two plus two equals four. So here we have four, this equals two plus two. The this is the four that refers to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true God. This is his identity. And Jesus Christ is eternal life. He is his son. The his refers back to God the Father. This is the unity of nature. Jesus Christ is the true God. Contrary to what the heretic Serinthus has come in teaching this group in Ephesus. And Jesus Christ, who is the true God, is eternal life. They're not going to find life anywhere else. Similar construction is found in Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Our is actually an article in the Greek. Great God and Savior then refers to the same person. Jesus Christ is our great God. And he is our Savior. In fact, there's two Granville Sharps in this verse, and there's only 80 in the New Testament. And there's two in this one verse. The blessed hope and his appearing is the exact same thing. Because remember what happens when he comes back. We are conformed to his image. Our new nature is put into the car that it was meant for. Looking for that blessed hope and appearing the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The very last verse strikes some as abrupt. And I, I think it is a rhetorical tactic that John has used here. Uh, some of my favorite books are written by this Japanese author. And he does this thing where he drops you in the middle of a story and he takes you out before the story's done. And it's frustrating to some people. In fact, I had my coworker read one of the books and she said, never again. There was no conclusion. But you know what? It had this effect that I kept thinking about that book and thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. What happened next? Because I basically have to live that myself in order to find out because the author never told me. But this has a similar rhetorical effect. It leaves us thinking at the end of his word. Remember, actually, I don't know if you remember, this was six months ago when we started First John. There is no formal introduction. Letters begin with an introduction. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called uh, for the sake of the gospel. Here, we didn't get any of that. He starts the story right away. This is eternal life. This is the joy of fellowship. And here he ends, guard yourselves from idols. We know what the technia are. These are the born ones of God. This is not the paideia who are the just immature believers. This is every single person who is born of God. We are under this instruction to guard ourselves from idols. Well, what are idols? Idols are false gods. Idols are lies that we put our faith in. False ways of living. False things to worship. 
Idols are the fuel of the cosmos system. Whereas the truth of God in Jesus Christ, his son, this is the fuel of the new nature, the spirit. We get it from the word of God. John is not bringing up a new topic here at the end. He is summarizing the entire message of 1 John. Do not chase after lies. You have the one true God. Do not revert. Do not depart from the truth. 1 John 2.24 As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Abide is continuing without ceasing. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he made, which he himself made to us, eternal life. This was probably one of the greatest mountain peaks until we got to the crucifixion of Christ in John's epistle. And he goes on, now let little children abide in him. In other words, continue in that same faith standing firm on the same fact of your eternal life in him, continue in that so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Live the Christian life well by depending on his word and not the word of Satan, not the lies of the world. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself just as he is pure. So to conclude the book of 1 John, we'll actually conclude with a verse that does not come from 1 John, but probably the beginning of John's understanding of just who this Jesus is and what he has come to do. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Stand on this truth. Do not depart from this truth. Nothing else is true. The main idea this morning is that everything in John's letter moves swiftly and abruptly to these last verses. His point is that we already have the truth, and his conclusion is, do not abandon the truth for anything. Everything else is a lie. Jesus is the truth, and he is the life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of this epistle from John. We can feel his heart on every page. We see how much he aches for the maturity of these fellow believers. We see his heart for the truth of your word, for your son, Jesus Christ, and the love that changed him forever, the love of your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and paid for our sins so that we could live in newness of life together with him, identified in his resurrection. So as we look forward to and long for the soon coming of Jesus Christ, we pray that we would stand firm on his word. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.